ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacGyver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. I mean, she's a pretty lady, but she was very pristine and very, very well put together. And I just remember like, oh. I had the impression that there was a plan being enacted. They were actually um, kind of huddling like you would think of a sports team, literally holding on to each other in a small circle. Dr. Hardy said, what happened? Did you accidentally shoot yourself? And she said, yeah, no, no, my husband shot me, but it was an accident. In a murder trial in the heart of Georgia, it may all come down to a woman named Danny Joe. Danny Joe Carter was the best friend of Diane McIver, and she's the only witness to Diane's killing. Her testimony spanned more than two full days of the Tex McIver murder trial. It was the most anticipated moment of the proceeding, and she didn't disappoint. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're following this case and would like to engage in some good discussions, please join our AJC Breakdown Facebook group. According to Danny Joe, Tex did ask her to lie to the cops, as we've reported before, and she talked at length about Tex's fondness for guns, his exceptional skill with guns, he could shoot a bottle thrown into the air before it hit the ground, and his insistence on gun safety. We'll get to all that and more, but let's set the table with some background on the friendship of Diane McIver and Danny Joe Carter. Here's what Danny Joe said about Diane. We became more like sisters. She was a lot of fun. She was intense. She played hard and she, she could be difficult she, because she was very pragmatic about appointments, times, things that you did, um, how you were eating. She could be difficult along with being very mm-hmm. loving. Danny Joe and Diane met 41 years ago at the hair salon where Danny Joe was doing nails. She has branched out over the years to embrace makeup. She does eyeliner tattooing, among other things. And now she's a mobile service. She goes to her clients. Anyway, the women became so close, they talked on the phone almost every day. And Tex and Diane treated her to trips. Paris, the south of France, Yellowstone, Colorado. Prosecutor Clint Rucker led her through the narrative of driving into Atlanta. She got on to I-75-85, what we call the downtown connector, or even the hated downtown connector, and immediately ran into construction traffic. So she got off the connector at her first opportunity and headed down an exit ramp toward the streets of the city. Tex 
started saying, girls, I wish you hadn't gotten off here. This is a bad idea. This is a bad area. You should have just stayed on 85. They stopped at a light, Danny Joe says, and Diane told her to turn left onto Edgewood. Tex still didn't like the neighborhood. Uh, Tex asked Diane, he said, darling, will you, you hand me my gun? Did you see anyone when you were stopped there at the red light, um, anyone who appeared to be homeless or that was approaching the car or attacking the car or anything like that? No. He said, darling, hand me my gun. And did you do it? Yes. Now, Prosecutor Clint Rucker makes a sly aside. Remember all the talk about how Diane might have survived as she'd been taken to Grady Memorial Hospital rather than to Emory? So Rucker stops his Google Map presentation and asks Danny Joe to focus in on a sign. Miss um, Carter, do you see that big old billboard right there in the right corner? Yes. What does it say? It says, I wouldn't be here without Grady. I wouldn't be here without Grady. Mm-hmm. That's how Grady advertises in Atlanta. It shows portraits of various people all saying, I wouldn't be here without Grady. Rucker's implication was clear. Diane McIver didn't go to Grady, and she isn't here. Rucker returns to debunking Tex's story. As you'll recall, Tex initially said through a spokesman he saw people near the exit or on the streets who made him uncomfortable. Maybe Black Lives Matter protesters, maybe carjackers, maybe even homeless people. You don't have to be a sociologist to know what he meant. Scary black people. In a certain white social stratum of Atlanta, this sort of defense plays well. But for most people, it's hate speech. Did you see anyone who appeared to be protesting anything out there? No, I did not. From Edgewood, Danny Joe said, Diane told her to turn right onto Piedmont Avenue. And all along this route that we are um, looking at, um, at any point in time, did you see large crowds or any crowd of anyone who appeared to be a danger or a threat to you, Diane McGiver, and the defendant while you were in this vehicle? No. This is a problem because, in Tex's narrative, the loitering scary people explain why Tex wanted his gun. But Danny Joe says she saw no scary people around. So the jury has to be asking, if there were no scary people, why did Tex need the gun? Maybe so he could stage an accident and kill his wife? That's what the state would have you believe. Danny Joe says she drove north on Piedmont and was stopped at either 12th or 14th Street when the gun went off. Then Rucker did what Rucker does. He had commissioned a guy to create a model of part of the SUV's interior. So the guy obtained expedition-looking seats and arranged them just so on a platform. He also included the console, that container between the two front seats that has your candy wrappers, random sticks of unchewed gum, spare change, receipts from 1983, all the detritus of the commuting life. Except in Texas' case, the console also contained a plastic Publix grocery bag that held a 38 revolver. So Rucker brings in this masterpiece of prosecutorial truth-seeking, which is actually kind of cool. He puts Danny Joe in the driver's seat where she was that night. Assistant DA Salita Griffin gets into the front passenger seat where Diane was. And Assistant DA Adam Abate gets into the back seat where Tex was. With everyone accounted for, Danny Joe continues her narrative. Diane said, um, when he said, darling, hand me my gun, Diane said, Tex, I don't even know where your gun is. And he said, it's in the console. And she opened the console and 
I looked down and I didn't see it. He said it's in the plastic bag. Rucker puts a latex glove on his right hand and removes the 38 Smith & Wesson from the public's grocery bag. He shows it to Danny Joe. But within moments, he's putting his bare left hand on the gun. So I don't know what the glove was for. Anyway. You were actually physically stopped at the red light. Yes. Can you say to the jurors whether or not um, you um, hit a bump? No, we did not. Part of Tex's initial story was that the expedition hit a bump, causing the gun to go off. So there was no bump, according to Danny Joe. Then, she testified, Diane started clicking her door lock. Danny Joe asked what she was doing, and Diane said, I'm just making sure the doors are locked. I think that's the last thing that she said. Before? I heard a big boom, and I... I didn't know what it was. I thought there was an explosion somewhere. I did not realize that, that it was a gunshot right away. How did it sound? It was loud. And so can you tell the jurors what happened next? Diane turned around, like, she turned around this way. She flung around and she says, Tex, what did you do? Tex, what did you do? And did he say anything? He said the gun discharged. She said she saw Diane turn, and she turned too. And I saw a puff of smoke, and I could see his hand, his hands. And I could see the top of the gun, I could see part of the gun, his hands, and some of the bag. So you turned around and looked. Did you see the gun in Mr. MacGyver's lap? No, I saw him right there. After I heard the boom, I looked around, I could see the gun and, and his hands in the bag. Sadly, Danny Joe's next thought was, uh-oh, Tex is in trouble now. Diane is going to be angry. I expected her to light into him. And did she? No. She turned around and sat straight up. She just sat there for a second. I was still waiting for the light to change. I could see out of the side of my eye um, the way I can see her sitting here. And she leaned forward and started doing like this. She said, Tex, you shot me. Did he say anything? No. Danny Joe said she didn't call 911, at least partly because she didn't know where she was and she didn't want to just sit there while her friend was dying. So she started honking her horn. She put the expedition's flashers on and she asked Tex where the nearest emergency room was. Tex said Emery, and off they went. I wanted to panic, but I knew that I couldn't. As for Diane? She was breathing really hard and um, kind of like panicky. Tex then held his wife. He leaned forward and was holding her head with both hands and was saying, Diane, Diane. As they sped toward Emery, Danny Joe didn't like what she was hearing. Her, she started making these noises that I've never heard before, and I thought she was dying. They were horrible noises. Danny Joe estimated that it took her 15 to 20 minutes to get to Emory, although I'm confident it didn't take her nearly that long. The jury watched surveillance videos that showed the expedition passing through Piedmont and 12th Street and the expedition arriving at Emory. From the timestamps on the videos, it looks like Danny Joe got there in about nine minutes. After they'd been ushered into the ER waiting room, 
text asked Danny Joe to go out to the expedition to get his phone. It was plugged into the charger in the back seat. The prosecution repeatedly made a point of that, as if to say, it would have been so easy for Tex to call 911. And he took the phone and he started scrolling and he said, I know this doesn't look good. And I knew he was calling his attorney because that's what attorneys do. Later, Tex did something that was beyond bizarre. He looked up and didn't look at me, but looked past me and said, I don't trust these guys. Danny Joe, I hate to see you get wrapped up in this. I've seen how these things can go down. You just need to say you came down here as a friend of the family. I leaned down and said, Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room. Why did you tell him that? Well, because if I just drove down there as a friend of the family, <coughs> there was no reason for me to be down at Emory Hospital in Decatur, where I never go, with no car at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, you know, 15 minutes after his wife had been shot. How was I supposed to explain that? Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room. And then did he say something in response to that? He looked at me and he says, well, they don't know that. Well, that, that took my breath away. I said, I can't lie. He said, oh, I'm not asking you to do that. At length, Dr. Suzanne Hardy walked into the waiting room. She said Diane's heart was strong, but she had lost a lot of blood. And Diane had spoken, saying the shooting was an accident, Dr. Hardy said. Danny Joe said she found that encouraging. Two Atlanta police officers asked Danny Joe if they could talk to her. When she said yes, they took her outside. They got into a car and asked her to help them retrace the route. Then they took her to headquarters. Not long after they got there, Danny Joe was sitting alone in an interview room. Then she got a text from her husband. Diane had just passed away. I was upset. I was angry. I was in there all by myself and found out that my best friend died, and I was all by myself. I was scared. I didn't like being down there in that building. It, I, nobody was around there. I, was, I mean, I was totally alone. When she returned from APD, Danny Joe said she found Tex and his lawyer, Steve Maples, at Emory. Prosecutor Rucker asked her what Tex said to her. And can you tell us what he said exactly, as best you can? Just, I can't go to jail. Danny Joe said her husband drove Tex home from Emory. When they returned to the condo, Tex got Danny Joe to stay with him a few hours. He dialed the phone and looked at me and said, I, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. And I just sat there while he made his phone call and he, whoever he had called it, he just said, Diane's dead. There's, there's been an accident, Diane's dead. The following days were tough on Danny Joe. After 10 years of sobriety, she started drinking again. It was also during this time that Tex started cataloging Diane's belongings. I said, I think it's a really bad idea. Um, it just doesn't look good. What did he say to you? He said that he was doing what his lawyers were telling him to do. And then what did you say to him? I said, I think that's unfortunate. A week later, Tex asked Danny Joe to sit for an interview with AJC reporters. A court stenographer would be present, taking down every word. When asked what she thought about that, Danny Joe said, Initially, I said that I would. Right. Why did you tell him that initially? Because I wanted to help. But you didn't do it. 
right? No. So at this point, Danny Joe was absolutely no longer in Texas camp. Instead of being home the morning of October 6th, when Tex was going to send a car to take her to the interview, Danny Joe and her husband weren't there. They had spent the previous night at a friend's house. Danny Joe says she next saw Tex about a week later. She wanted to know about Diane's ashes. I asked him where her cremains were. Where her cremains were? Uh-huh. You knew that Diane had been cremated? Yes. He said the woman hadn't called him back at the crematorium. And so when he said to you, hey, I haven't gotten the cremains back yet because the woman hasn't called me back, what did you say to him? Nothing. Now, this line of questioning is important. The DA is trying to establish that Tex knew exactly what he was doing with guns. He was very safety conscious. It was, would always tell me not to do something. Not to do what? Fire a gun while somebody was standing, like, in front of where the gun was. Like, not right in front, but even if they were off to the side. Or making sure I didn't point it in the wrong direction. He would tell you that? Yes. And Tex did the same for godson Austin Schwal. He was very good with training and, you know, teaching the proper ways to, to handle a weapon. Tex was also a bit of a gunslinger. Is the defendant a good shot with a gun? Yes. He could throw a water bottle up and then shoot it and hit it. Throw a water bottle up in the air? And shoot it and hit it. Shoot it and hit it before it hit the ground? Yes. We'll be right back. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Bruce Harvey cross-examined Danny Joe for the defense. He framed long leading questions that Danny Joe's only job was to say yes or right or correct. Sometimes Harvey even forgot to ask a question, but he still got Danny Joe to agree. It was almost as if Harvey was giving the testimony himself. He was on top of his game. Harvey spent some time having Danny Joe describe the warm and loving relationship between Tex and Diane. And Harvey eventually got to the ride back to Atlanta. After 18 holes of golf and 90-degree weather, Tex and Diane returned to the ranch and hastily packed up to leave. Didn't even take time to shower. Before leaving, Danny Joe said, either Tex or Diane poured some red wine into a Yeti container. You know, that metal tumbler that keeps stuff cold for like 10 years. And when they got onto I-20 on the way to dinner at Longhorn, Diane was driving the expedition. They were passing the Yeti back and forth. Yes. Diane is taking sips of the Yeti while she's driving down the road. Yes. Tex is in the back seat, and he may have sips too. At least you saw him passing it back and forth. Yes. After stopping for dinner, Danny Joe took the wheel for the drive to Atlanta. She said she and Diane talked about Diane changing out her closet at the condo and her upcoming salon appointment that Thursday for work on her eyebrows. The question of whether Tex was asleep is critical to the defense. So we told you what Danny Joe said about this in episode one. Would she say the same thing again this time? or not. Harvey asks Danny Joe if she remembers telling the detective this. And Tex was asleep. Do you remember that? Not. 
oh, I don't know what he was doing. No, I, got, I don't remember what he's doing. Oh, it's possible that he was asleep. It was, and Tex was asleep. Remember that? Talking to Detective Smith? Yes. Yes. Danny Joe said when they hit the traffic on the downtown connector, she suggested they get off the interstate. At this point, she said, Diane was talking to Tex. And it was Diane that was saying to Tex, 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 wake up. Right? Yes. And it's there that Tex comes out of his sleeping state and said, I think this is a bad idea, girls. This is a bad area. Right? Yes. That's when he says, darling, that word again, darling, this is a bad area. I wish you hadn't have done this, girl, speaking to both of you. Right? Yeah. Now he said girls. Girls. Darling, would you hand me my gun? Yes. And you said, Tex, what are you talking about? Why do you need your gun? You don't need to get your gun out. Why would you do that? That's what you said? No. Diane said, Tex, what are you doing? No. You don't need a gun. Why would you get a gun out? You didn't say anything. No. Diane didn't say anything. No. Diane takes the, the gun and hands the gun to Tex. Yes. Without any hesitation. Without any hesitation. Harvey relies on the police officer's notes of what Danny Joe told the cops later that night. Do you remember telling Officer Riker that there were a lot of scary people standing at the intersections and that you all kept getting stuck at every red light? Rucker objected, but Judge McBurney overruled him. Danny Joe never answered the question, but the point had already been made. And Harvey got Danny Joe to acknowledge that Tex was a political junkie. If you were talking politics, he'd join in. While Danny Joe and Diane were driving on Piedmont, they were talking about the presidential debates, but Tex was silent. If he'd been awake, he'd have been talking about them too, Danny Joe said. Harvey asks her about crossing 10th Street and arriving at the stop where the gun went off. At that point, you know that Tex had gone back to sleep? I, I assumed. Well. Once again, when you were talking with Detective Smith, you remember you told him, I'm sure he went to sleep with the gun in his hand. Remember telling Detective Smith that? I don't remember saying, saying that, but I, d I assumed that he was asleep. All right. So. I was pretty sure. That was when you heard the boom. Yes. This is critical testimony. Danny Joe is standing by her statement that Tex was asleep with the gun in his hand when they came to a stop on Piedmont. 
Harvey also asked Danny Joe about what Tex said after he fired the shot. Tex said, I discharged a bullet. I was asleep. He said he discharged the gun. I don't remember him saying I was asleep. Once again, your statement to Detective Smith. And oh, this is with Detective Smith? Because, okay. Yeah, I see it here. Later, Harvey asked Danny Joe about Tex asking her to lie to the police. Yeah, you just need to tell him you're down here as a friend sure. of the family. Because the Martians would have come down and driven the car in. Judge McBurney then told Harvey to ask another question. Wasn't that just the dumbest thing you've ever heard? It didn't make sense to me. Of course it didn't make sense. There's no question that Tex McIver was the person who shot his wife. Right? Yes. It was just stupid, wasn't it? That's why I leaned down and told him, Tex, I just drove you into the emergency room. You also told them that Tex was sleeping in the back. And I knew that because Diane had had to wake him up. Okay. He had dozed off. Yes. Well, I knew he was asleep because she woke him up. Harvey reads to Danny Joe what she told the detectives about that fatal shot. There is not a doubt in my mind that it was completely one of the most horrible accidents that I know about. I did say that. When Harvey ended his lengthy cross-examination of Danny Joe, he hammered home the points he'd made whenever he'd had the opportunity to do so. The other description that you had given the authorities on 9-26 of 2016 was that Tex absolutely worshipped Diane. You described them as lovebirds, correct? Yes. And that it was a relationship to be envied, correct? Correct. And they were always talking about how happy she is, correct? Yes. And that they were still, still attracted to each other, correct? Yes. And you described like, you know, sometimes you thought they were just going to hop in the back seat of the car. Yes. And that's exactly what was the relationship that you observed between Tex and Diane on 9-25-2016, correct? Yes. On redirect, on the third day of Danny Joe's testimony, Rucker revisited her statement about the shooting being a tragic accident. When you talked to Detective Smith, did you tell him whether or not it was a horrible accident? Yes. Remember that? Yes. Can you explain to the jury why would you say that to Detective Smith if you have told us that you actually didn't see what happened in the backseat, what he was doing? Because I couldn't imagine it being anything other than a horrible accident. Rucker ended Danny Joe's testimony this way. Yesterday, I think you told us that the state of your feelings towards the defendant was you were fond of him. Yes. That was before the shooting? Yes. Is the state of your feelings toward the defendant the same today? 
No. We'll be right back. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Attorney Esther Panich, who watched Danny Joe's testimony, found it helpful to both the prosecution and the defense. I think she was very honest. I think she was trying to recall everything she could remember. Obviously, towards the end, it appeared that she had an opinion and that she was not fond of him anymore. Panich said Rucker was effective in eliciting testimony that highlighted Texas' bizarre behavior at the hospital. The covering up, the changing the stories, the attempting to influence witnesses, that all reflects very poorly on him. And you can understand why the state is suspicious and why people would be suspicious, because why would people do that if not for guilt? It's consciousness of guilt. As for Bruce Harvey's cross-examination, she called it masterful. Well, a good cross is that. It's a leading question, and you suggest the answer. So really, the jury is really hearing Bruce Harvey's voice more and his narrative just being, it's, it's being um, approved of by the witness. And I think that's impactful, not just for this particular trial, but in any trial as a defense attorney. That's, that's part of the art. Here's her take on how effective it was. What they did was really get out Texas' personality and how he interacted with Diane. So all this talk about darling this and darling that, Bruce spent a long time speaking about how Tex talked to Diane, very lovingly, very gentlemanly, very old-fashioned. And that was what Diane, you know, one of the things I guess Diane found attractive about him. And so we were able to get more of a glimpse of their relationship just listening to his cross. Panich said Harvey did a good job of drawing out Danny Joe's belief that Tex had fallen asleep in the expedition. Her narrative, the way the defense put it together, really um, confirms the story that Tex had told. And that's what their theory of the case is. So if you believe the defense, if you believe that he was sleeping, then you're more likely to believe than it was, that it was either accidental or reckless versus intentional because who's about to kill their spouse knowingly and, and falls asleep? I mean, it's, it's a very unusual circumstance. You're gonna, the state would have to have the jury believe in order to convict him of murder. The prosecution called Tom Carter, Danny Joe's husband, next. Carter told the jury what Tex told him at the hospital the night Diane died. He's somewhere there on the way back from the ranch and they ran into some traffic downtown and they got off an exit and he felt like they were in a dangerous area and could they hand him back his, his gun. And he said at some point he fell asleep and then the damn thing just went off. Remember when Danny, Joe, and Tom slipped away from their house so she could skip out on that interview with the AJC? Through Carter, we finally get to hear the message Tex left on his phone the morning Danny Joe didn't show. Tommy Lee is Tex. Sir, let me just be plain. Danny is about to send me to prison. Please erase this 
this voicemail message, but call me right away. Y'all have no idea the problem this is causing. It's innocent, but it's absolutely nuclear for me. Please, please call me. This doesn't look good for Tex. He's obviously fearful what might happen to him, and he's telling his friend to delete the message. That sure sounds incriminating. Prosecutors also called Emory Police Officer Frank Stroop to the stand. Stroop said he met Tex's lawyer, Steve Maples, at the hospital the night of Diane's death. At one point, Maples and Tex were in a room together. The door was open. When he walked by, Stroop said he heard Tex say, What do I say? Or what's the plan? Something like that. With this kind of testimony, it's probably safe to say the jury may be thinking that Tex was concerned more about himself than Diane. So, jurors got to hear from Danny Joe. They also got to hear from Tex. And much more than that desperate phone mail message he left on Tom Carter's phone. No, Tex didn't take the stand. And quite frankly, I'll be stunned if he actually does. The jury watched and listened to an interview Tex gave to two Atlanta police homicide detectives two days after Diane died at Emory Hospital. It's been interesting hearing the prosecutors ask questions of witnesses so far. They seem eager to let the jury know what the homicides didn't do and who they didn't talk to after Diane's death. It's like they've been engaged in a passive-aggressive campaign to trash Atlanta police. That's the APD that recommended Tex be charged with involuntary manslaughter for killing Diane, not malice murder as indicted by the Fulton DA's office. Okay, Tex shows up accompanied by his two lawyers at the time, Steve Maples and Calvin Leipold. He's wearing a black suit. He pretty much answers the detective's questions head on. He doesn't appear to be shifty, but he does give answers that are inconsistent with what he would tell others and somewhat different than Danny Joe's version of what happened. The audio is not the best, so please bear with me. I can describe my familiarity with it, but we went through an area I thought that was particularly dangerous. That's one that has a particularly high population almost. Okay. Kind of thing it rose the hair on the back of your neck. And I quickly said, uh, this is a big mistake and we're in a place that we don't belong. Right. And uh, of course here we are, almost new SUV and two women in the front seat. In case you didn't hear that, Tex said they were going through a dangerous area, one that had a high population of homeless people. He said all those homeless people, quote, rose the hair on the back of your neck, unquote. He said this was a big mistake, and here we are in an almost new SUV with two women in the front. Tex said he asked for his gun in the center console. He said he keeps it in a plastic bag in case someone breaks into his car and will just see the bag and not realize there's a gun inside. So Diane reached in and handed it to him. Not long after, Tex said, they appeared to be out of danger. Yes, I just uh, laid back again and went to sleep. Oh, this twilight zone kind of thing. I guess I just laid back and went to sleep, this twilight kind of thing, Tex said. She came to a stop and uh, I was handling the gun. Uh, I realized it was in my lap. Danny Joe came to a stop, he said. Quote, I was handling the gun. I didn't realize it was in my lap. It went off, unquote. Tex said he immediately called out, is everyone all right? And then he put his arms around Diane. Tex said he told Danny Joe to speed to Emory Hospital because it was a client of his firm's. He also recounted what happened when he was told at the hospital that Diane was dead. I'm going to cry, Tex told the detectives. 
Then he said, Two surgeons and scrubs and a chaplain approached me. I looked behind me, hoping they were going to talk to someone else, but they came for me. After jurors watched the interview, Rucker questioned Atlanta police homicide detective Brett Zimbrick about it, and he scored some points. Can you tell the jurors when he made that statement to you, I'm going to cry, did you ever see any tears come down Mr. MacGyver's face? No. Rucker then makes another point. And can you tell the jurors, um, is it right after telling you that the large number of homeless people made the hair on his neck rise that he then tells you he went to sleep? Yes. And Rucker asked Zimbrick what was missing in Texas' statement to the detectives. There was no mention of a bump by Mr. MacGyver? No. No mention of Black Lives Matter? No. Sleep disorder? Not to me. Amnesia? Not to me. Never told you that the gun slipped? Correct, he did not. Before we come to the part where I say, next, on breakdown, I'm told that's one of my best lines, I wanted to relate something that happened in court. It suggests that Bruce Harvey isn't totally pleased with the way Judge McBurney is running things. I gotta say, I've been impressed with Judge McBurney. He's incredibly attentive to the testimony, he makes some good quips from time to time, and he's stern when he needs to be. But he and Harvey? There seems to be a history here. And Harvey's well-known temper ignited during the following exchange with McBurney. And let this be a lesson to you. Don't get between a lawyer and his lunch. It was Thursday afternoon at 12.35. Harvey had just stepped up to cross-examine an Atlanta police officer. He apparently indicated to McBurney he was ready for lunch, to which McBurney told Harvey, you determine when. Harvey said that calling for the lunch break and determining the duration of the break were not up to him. That's judge's work, he seemed to be saying. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm hungry. I would like to eat. We're at a natural breaking point. I don't need that you determine when we eat. I do not determine when we eat. We've got one six-minute break in the morning. We get 45 minutes at lunch. We get six minutes in the afternoon. I don't think that's a fair comment. No, if you're ready, you should proceed. Thank you. You're welcome. Next, on Breakdown. The uh, first thing that he did, he turned and looked over at, at me and said, uh, Jay, can you believe they, they want to charge me with reckless conduct for this thing? And I, I was taken aback by that. I stuttered and stammered, and, and I said, uh, well, uh, uh, Tex, there's a... I mean, there are, I think there's some elements of a crime here. Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. Sound designed by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Billy Gewen, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Bert Roten, who lit the fire that became Breakdown. Special thanks as well to the AJC's editor-in-chief and podcaster, Kevin Riley, to Pete Corson, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagore, and all the fine folks at the Journal-Constitution, plus Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, Buddy Hall, Josh Gaynor, and our good friends at WSB-TV and radio. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex, Mac Iver. An inmate at... 
Fulton County Jail. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.